Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Thomas H. Cook. His book, Master of the Delta, uh, he's in town. Uh, I should mention this is a pre-taped show, June 16th. I'm so happy to have you here, Tom. Thank you very Tom, much. I'm, for, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's, it's great to see you. you. And, um, and you're, you're coming to town. You'll be reading at Aunt Agatha's Mystery Bookstore. Um, yes. And so have you, have you read there before, Tom? Because I, I noticed you've got a huge tour lined up. You're going to be on the road for quite a while, hitting mystery bookshops across the country. Yeah, I should be quite scruffy by the time I, I get home. I, I noticed it today in the mirror. I didn't look quite as uh, sharp as I as I had before because you can't bring scissors onto a plane anymore, and so oh, right. that's a problem. But yeah, we're doing. I've just finished the southern swing of the tour, which was through Mississippi and Alabama. Now we're th- into Michigan, and we'll be going down to St. Louis, uh, Dayton, Houston, Memphis, and then out to the west, Seattle, Phoenix. Los Angeles, Seattle, all around. Yeah, Seattle in July, I yep. noticed, right? And at, at the Mystery Bookshop there mm-hmm. as well. Um, and you were saying earlier that your voice might carry a bit more of a southern twang because you're just coming off the that part of that leg of the tour. Well, it's pretty bad because I called my wife last night and she didn't recognize uh, my voice. I, I am southern. <laughs> I was born in Alabama. And, uh, and so when I'm down there, yeah, it becomes really, really thick after a while. And it takes me a while to, uh, for it to sort of drop away when I'm when I go back up north but once you're there you just kind of step step into it oh absolutely I mean if I have a long conversation with one of my southern friends my by the time I get off the phone I have a I have a much thicker southern accent than when I started the conversation is there, is there has there ever been a time Tom when you um you you were sort of your because you 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 live in New York City and also Cape Cod, mm-hmm. so um, when you were up there, and but you actually just had one of the colloquial colloquialisms from the South kind of come through, but you said it in your non-Southern. You must voice. be in- intuitive with stories because uh, I actually have have one. I went into a store, uh, a little deli, one of those little dugout delis that they have in New York City, very very small. And uh, because I was a bachelor at that time, and I had to uh, cook my own sort of lunches, and I would make uh, these little weeny things and, and pork and beans. I'd make it for a week. That's what I would have the entire week. But I went in to buy these things that I used to make when I was in college, and I said, do you have any uh, Vienna sausage? And the guy looked at me, no. And I said, well, yeah, you do. They're, you know, they're right over there. And I pointed to them. Of course, that was Vienna sausage. Vienna. So I said to him, is that the worst you've ever had? And he said, no, 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 no. A guy came in the other day and he said, could you have any Dracus caucus? And he said, what? And he said, Dracus caucus. And he said, no, I don't have that. And he said, Drake's Cakes. It was a Greek guy. <laughs> oh, that's great. New York City. Nothing like it. <laughs> that's what happens. Um, okay. Well, Tom, before we go any further, I'll just read the bio in the back of um, your latest novel. And you've since the 80s, you've been having, you're prolific. You're a prolific man. Okay, Master of the Delta, a novel. Thomas H. Cook is the author of 21 novels and two works of nonfiction. He has been nominated for the Edgar Award seven times in five different categories, including Best Novel for Red Leaves, which was also nominated for the British Crime Writers Association's Duncan Laurie Dagger and won the Barry for Best Novel. The Chatham School Affair won the Edgar for Best Novel. He lives in New York City and Cape Cod. 
but still has the South in his heart. Very much. And in, and in many of my novels still. My Master of the Delta is set oh, in the South. Mississippi. Mississippi. 1954. 1954. Yes. yes. <laughs> so what was the reception like when you were, when you were down? Because you were uh, just coming from there, you said. It was very, it was very nice in Mississippi. Uh, of course, tours are, tours are odd in, in the sense that uh, the, the appearance dates, when they, when they occur, are sometimes a bit arbitrary and that sort of thing. You can never be sure that you're going to get a crowd unless you're a really, really famous writer. But um, I, you go to the independent bookstores because they stay alive to some degree because they have these wonderful book clubs. And you go and you may sign several hundred books. There may not be many people at an appearance. There were there were some, but not a great crowd until I really got to Birmingham. Uh, but you still Alabama. you still <laughs> Alabama, right? And uh, that was pretty much made up of family. <laughs> no. I, yeah, but it didn't matter to the bookseller because he was selling books anyway. So it didn't matter they were my cousins and my aunts. But I actually drew a crowd. It was very exciting. But you, you do sign a lot of books for the clubs, and the clubs are very important because they get so many books out, and they get them in the hands of readers and readers who then recommend and, uh, a book to a friend. And, and they are book clubs, Tom, that are specific to mystery, like oh, sort of their mystery book, book clubs. Yes, uh, the independent mystery booksellers really have a, uh, a mystery book club, and they will sometimes pick a book for that month or that week, and that goes out to their entire list. And these are autographed copies, and so they want you to come in and sign those books. So even though there might be eight or nine people actually show up at a reading, you may sign 150 to 200 books. So the reach is much, much It's much, much further. That. And, of course, they do want them to recommend them because I happen to, I happen to believe in the old school that uh, it, it really is recommendations that that make a book and so is there is there a a community of people because it seems like you're go, you're going across the country and as you said like there's the the book groups and and the booksellers seem to almost have like an informal community where they they network with each other perhaps like especially in the present economy with like all the the, the big conglomerate book stores they they have a tendency to have a more intimate relationship with their with their customers in the sense that uh, their recommendations are not staff recommendations in the sense that they're just a big a big board that says what books they're recommending but because they've had these customers over many years they actually know what a what a customer likes and although they might like a different book they might not even necessarily recommend recommend a book they like. They're really look, recommending a book that they think that customer would like. It's a little like going to a, into a wine store. If you go into a different wine store every day, then no one can recommend wine to you because they don't know right. what you like. Right. They can say what they like. Sure. They can tell you. Yeah. Do you recognize any of the people, Tom? Because then I imagine you've been on many a book tour um, throughout the career so far. And so is it sort of when you're coming into these different towns, do you recognize some of the, the, the same people in, these, uh, in the communities? Oh, sure. In some of the communities, you've, you've gotten to know them, and you, you've gotten to know them because you've appeared at the store, but you've also gotten to know them because they often uh, they often go to Bowser Khan and places like that. Bowser Khan is a... Unlike uh, Mystery Writers of America, which is really an organization of mystery writers uh, for the most part, they do have affiliate membership, but it is primarily writers and people in the professionally in the business, editors and everything, everything like that. Bowser Khan is really a, a, um, a convention of fans. And uh, they meet at a different place every year. I don't go every year, but uh, but it, it's always a lot of lot of fun, and you get to know the booksellers there too because they come, they have booths and and all that sort of thing. So you learn you learn who the booksellers are and 
uh, Houston and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And then give perhaps like one of the days you'd give a reading or, or so or so, do some signings or a Q&A. You do signings and uh, they have panels. And so they'll come up with a subject, and uh, they'll have three or four or five writers on that panel, and they'll discuss one issue. It might be a creative issue. of It might be as simple as uh, poison versus versus pistols or something, oh, something great. like that, which I'm never a part of because I don't write that, you know, that usually that kind of mystery. But they might, uh, they might uh, just have thematically talk about the nature of suspense, uh, the purpose of foreshadowing, or how you do foreshadowing, and that sort of thing. And so some of the people who would be coming to to these conventions would be coming to hear and listen or have a chance to maybe talk with you or one of the other writers that they've, they've been reading, but also because they might have aspirations as writers as well. And so sort of have these forums to talk about. There's always, there are always a great many people within, within, any, within any literary yes. uh, establishment <laughs> that, who are trying to, to write a novel. And so certainly they come to try to get uh, not only to meet editors and agents and that sort of thing, but also to get um, have intimate one-on-ones with writers that they know and admire to try to get uh, a little information on how, how best they can learn to do it. Because it seems like a very specialized AWP. Mm-hmm. You know, like a very like a specialization, one of, one of those conferences. Mysteries are genre. Yes. And, uh, How do you feel about that idea of having, like, is, is genre, this is probably a very boring question. <laughs> I feel like I am a crusader for genre, <laughs> but what, what do you feel about it? Well, it's really interesting. You can look at genre from, from two points of view. I mean, uh, I, I, I mean, I can take a snooty point of view and say... Well, go ahead. Do that one first. Okay, yeah, I'll, do, I'll do the snooty me first. You know, <laughs> I might even try to do a Boston accent with that. No, I, I won't go that far. I'd be, I'd be helpless in that effort, but... <laughs> Um, if you, if for example, you you may you know on a, on the dark in the dark night of your soul think that well I'm more of a, really of a literary writer than I am say a whodunit writer or, or certainly a, in my case I don't write violence and I don't write um, hard boiled detective stories or that sort of thing and so you know on those sort of dark nights you might think well we really maybe I should be be in the sort of the general fiction and then you realize that, that in terms of the business of of, of publishing that'd be a horrible horrible mistake because. Because most people go into a store, and if they're mystery readers, they go to the mystery section. They don't go to general section, to general fiction section. And so, when you go into the general fiction, there might be 160 titles in that store, and many of them are going to be first novelists. And very often, if a person is not coming to buy the new John Updike or or buy the latest of one particular author, then they don't really look at any of the other books because they know nothing about them. They can't really tell from flap copy either. Whereas if you're if you're in your genre you're you're up against 26 other authors uh, per month or something like that and you also all already winnowed uh, the, the the type of person who's coming to look the disadvantage however to put it on the other side is uh, never actually taken seriously as a writer number one or that that can certainly be party not, not a real writer you're a genre writer uh, and yeah. The, so, what, yeah, what is that? How does I think that it, manifest itself? Like, and what do you do to? Uh, I think it's manifest itself in uh, very often in in reviews. They have a a section of the review where they put the genre writers, whether whether it be science fiction or mystery or or any of that sort of thing, and then they'll have general fiction outside that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I very often bounce bounce back and forth depending upon what the reviewer. Uh, 
who got the assignment to to review me on that particular occasion. If it was someone in general fiction, then it'll be in general fiction. Sometimes newspapers have um, reviewers who only review, uh, say, mystery. And uh, New York Times is pretty much like that, for example. Uh, Marilyn Stasio pretty much does. Uh, it used to be Newgate Calendar, and but they have that in a section. It doesn't mean that I'm not reviewed outside that section, because I because occasionally I am. I think it just really... It really depends. The other issue also is that is that many mainstream novels, and of course you're going to get mystery writers saying that Dostoevsky was a mystery writer too. But in fact, many of the most po- of the of the, of the really popular literary novels, Snowfalling on Cedars, for example, is is a is a mystery, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or mysteries, I should say. Yes. Yeah. I think he was he was aware that he was working within the genre with the, the courtroom and the. I think, and the mystery framework to work in. But by and large, I think he was reviewed outside that. He was, uh, exactly. Outside that framework. And I think what he brought to the mystery, which uh, I try to do, and which a lot of mystery writers are trying to do now, are those aspects of the novel which are novelistic, that is to say, which are literary. And that happens to do, that happens to be uh, atmosphere and character and really being about something, the moral life of man and and uh, and that sort of thing, I, I always say that if I don't know who it was done to, then I couldn't care less about who done it. Exactly. Like the yeah. If there isn't the character isn't developed, then what's where's the pathos in the, the either the crime or the mystery or the suspense? Is that is that's that true? And saying? you you say that because you're you're a, a reader, a serious reader. There are, uh, and I don't mean the other kind of readers aren't serious, but there is there is a kind of reader who really reads for the puzzle. And that's a kind of reader too, and they're they're perfectly that's perfectly that's perfectly okay, and there ought to be books for them. And there are people who read action thrillers, and that's what they read. I'm happy that anybody reads a book, you know. So it really doesn't matter to me why. Right, right. Well, okay. Well, on that note, let's let's take a short break, Tom. Um, uh, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Thomas H. Cook and his novel Master of the Delta. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in uh, today on Living Writers on WCBN-FM, um, we've got Thomas H. Cook in the studio and his latest a suspense uh, mystery, Master of the Delta. Um, and we we're talking about like the working within uh, a category of genre and out, you know, and outside of it, because I thought it was interesting because, um, Tom, one of the first things I saw was that Booklist had, had given you a starred review here. Um, and it says... 
you know, the suspense built slowly but inexorably, uh, helped along with liberal doses of foreboding from Branch, who's the narrator, Jack Branch, um, oh, the reminiscing narrator, um, near-perfect resonance. So we've got all this going on. And then uh, then he says, Ed, you know, Cook and Edgar Winner is known as a crime writer, but his storytelling has grown better and better as his works have become less formulaic. Um, it's a novel that just happens to be about crime. So when you read something... or. Do you read the reviews? Or oh yes, you're... absolutely. Okay. So when you read something like that, Tom, then like you know, some sort of way, like, uh, do you recognize a, a like a truth in that? Do you say, well, yeah, there was a time when I was writing in more of like a, a like a, a formula structure, or, or, or do you feel like you are kind of pushing beyond that now? Do you see that as is that reviewer saying something about? Has he has he or she read your other books? Is that any truth to that? Um, prob- probably he or she has. By the time you've written a lot of books, very often the reviewers are, are fairly familiar with your work. They haven't read everything, but uh, I've got red leaves coming later this week. Not that oh, it's helpful okay. now, but <laughs> well, I hope you think that you're in for a good experience. I'm sure, I do. Um, but I I uh, tried to be formulaic in, in in the beginning. My first novel um, I didn't think was a mystery. That was Blood uh, Blood Innocence. Blood yes. Innocence. Yeah, right with Playboy. That's odd, uh, yeah, oddly enough. Right. Uh, Mark Smith once said that publishing a book is a miserable experience, and uh, boy, it was for me. That that was yeah. You'll see no uh, no more no more Playboy. Uh, no, that was no, the last that one. Was, yeah, exactly. What was so miserable about it then? Well, that it wasn't my title. I felt everything that could possibly go wrong in the publication of that book went wrong, and yet it was one of those human experiences where probably because everything went wrong, something went right, and it went um, it it. Um, got nominated for an Edgar as a result. Um, but after that, I was sort of thought I was a mystery writer, even though my second novel, The Orchids, was not a mystery at all. My fourth novel, Eleanor, was not a mystery. The City When It, Ra- the city when it Rains is not a mystery. Uh, so I continued to write mainstream fiction. But because I wanted to make a living, I'm not, I'm not a trust fund baby, I, so I wanted to make a living as a writer. Uh, a friend of mine gave me some very good advice, or normally it would be good advice. It, uh, he said, you should write a series. Because that's really the way the way to do it, and so I actually did try to do that. I wrote three novels, and when I got to the last novel, I said to my wife, "If I ever write a book worse than this, I'm going to stop because it just wasn't my thing. I, I wasn't a good plotter in terms of the sort of classic detective story of moving from from this witness to that witness who moves you to that witness in sort of this lockstep formula. And it's a great formula. I mean, it's actually the way it often really happens in life. It's just that for me. It, it wasn't organic, and I wasn't really good at it. And it really wasn't until a mortal memory that I learned the way I wanted to write mysteries. And after that, there were hardly any police in my stories. And how was uh, that? Like, what was the way that you wanted to write mysteries? I thought I was better at having the narrator already know what was going on. That brings me to what I wanted to talk with you about, like the, the question of the chronology within mm-hmm. the structural choices. Because cause when we first, when we get to chapter, the first page of chapter one, we're sort of set in the 1954 mm-hmm. moment. But then soon, Jack Branch, the the, the reminiscing narrator, as, as booklist right. <laughs> calls him. Which is what he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we, then we, suddenly, we see that he's... He's an old he's he's an old man now. Yes, and I do that I do that for several reasons. Um, I was never influenced by mystery writers. I grew up in a southern uh, southern school, 
Southern Public Schools, which at that time taught classical literature. They they so did who not. Were, who were you influenced by then? Uh, I was actually influenced probably more by Dostoevsky, more by uh, Conrad was a huge influence, and and Hemingway, Faulkner, and Fitzgerald. I mean, I read the classics of American literature and British literature, and uh, those were the, that those were the novelists as far as I was concerned. Also, Edith Wharton, I, Ethan Fromm just knocked me out the first time I read it, and that sort of thing. And I never, I ne- I didn't read. I was not familiar with. Um, mystery writers as a genre. No, so no, not even like uh, Agatha Christie I knew or who Raymond she was, Chandler. But or... Raymond Chandler was a wonderful writer, and when I read him, uh, you know, I mean, that that was a writer, you know. Dashiell yes. Hammett is a yes. writer. And uh, and I enjoyed I enjoyed those books, but because I read them later, as I've read many, many mysteries and enjoyed them very much later, they weren't formative, formative simply because I didn't read them when I was young and when I was learning to be a writer. Uh, in that case, it was always... Um, these more classic American writers. And so I didn't know how to work out that formula, and I wasn't very good at it, by which you go from A to B to a solution. And so I found that the best route for me was to avoid the investigative sort of method. And also that would allow me to write a meditative novel. That is to say, to me, much of human life is about the struggle to outrun regret. And when you don't succeed in that and you look back and you try to ask where you're so- where did things go wrong, as where what many of my characters do, then that, that really becomes a book about the mystery. I mean, to get a little pretentious for a moment, that becomes a book about the mystery of life, not just the solution of a crime or, or something like that. But at the same time, I like to write about people in crisis, and crime is, is people in crisis. And uh, I would never write about an English major caught in an advertising uh, firm, you know, and going through the angst of deciding whether he should move to Westchester or, or to Montauk. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not my thing. I like people who are really in not life and death situations physically. Most of my characters are never in that kind of situation, but in life and death situations morally. Mm, I see. Okay. Well, that you mentioned crime. And so I, I wanted to ask you, since you're... It, you know, it's known as a crime writer then, or is there, what are the differences with, cause there's the true crime, mm-hmm. right? And then we have mystery. And then it seems like we have thriller suspense, almost like, uh, you do. They're even, I mean, they're even began to fra- being to fracture in their organizations. Thriller writers now have their own organization, uh, uh, cozy writers do not, but cozy writing is is really uh, also uh, writing within the mystery genre. And that, cozy, that, cozies are, are books that follow in the tradition, as I understand it, of, of Agatha Christie. They're they're puzzle mysteries, and, and you know that's, that's you know, that when, sort of thing. When you said puzzle mystery, yeah. I wondered if you meant like the Agatha Christie yeah. sort of that kind of thing, okay. where you know it's Mrs. Marple finding out if the vicar did it, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And uh, very pleasant can, can be quite quite lovely writing. Uh, but it is a it is a, a type of story. You're going to get this much sex, but not that much sex, you know, and this much violence, but off stage, not that much. And so it it appeals to a particular kind of reader. Although a friend of mine who's really very very knowledgeable in this in this business tells me that it's sort of a myth to believe that a person who writes who reads a, a say hard boil, which is the hard boil yes. detective, yes, um, th- never reads a cozy. It just isn't true, he says. And then or they never read a sort of a Snow falling on cedars type of book, or or that sort of thing, or a thriller, 
Because oh. like by 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 like sort of the hard boiled, you meet something like Jim Thompson. Yeah, yeah for, I mean he's famously hard boiled, yeah. you know, and that, and that sort of thing. Where you usually have a down at the heel private eye who's uh, looking for a blonde, you know. Right. And that's the stereotype of it. I'm sure they're they're where well, that's not the case, but I mean that kind of thing is is really a stereotypical kind of character. Yeah. So with the true crime, because you also help like with let's see, it looks like Otto Penzler, mm-hmm. uh, who who owns the 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 New York uh, the mis- the mysterious. Uh, bookshop in new york city um so you and you both edit best american crime writing at least you have since looks like 2000 up through two. yeah the first one i think actually came out in 2000 uh it was it was uh 2000 came out in 2000 i think it was 2001 because i remember uh, september 11th happened and i remember writing in the introduction that we had had no idea when we began that one crime would so um, be so much c- catastrophic than than any other, and and what to do about that? Because so much crime writing after September 11 had to do with terrorism and all that sort of thing. So we chose an absolutely stunning piece of writing about the actual description of 9/11 by Nancy Nancy Gibbs, who I think went on to win the National uh, Reporting Award. But um, mm. I've written two nonfiction books about crime. And and we edit this series where I, we pick the very best crime writing uh, from across the country and put it into a yearly anthology. And so, so you, so, so you're fine with the mantle of true crime writer as well, then. Oh because yes, because that's that's what those nonfiction books were then: Early Graves and Blood Echoes. Yes, true crime. And then it says a father story. As, yes. as told by Lionel Dahmer, so that would be Jeffrey Dahmer's father. Yeah, but it it really is about uh, Mr. Dahmer. It is really not about Lionel. It really isn't about uh, Jeffrey. It doesn't reconstruct his crimes or anything like that. So, what was your motivation for doing that book? Like, what led you to that, Tom? I had uh, been living in Spain, and uh, I came back, um, and I s- said to my agent. I really love writing nonfiction, and I hadn't written nonfiction in a while, and, and so I said, if you just be on the lookout for any nonfiction, and he immediately said, well, I, I know you've been in uh, abroad for a long time, but have you heard of Jeffrey Dahmer? And I said, oh, yeah, but I don't want to write Jeffrey Dahmer, and uh, that, there's nothing interesting in that, that kind of crime. There's no motivation, really, except the psychopathic one that we're never going to really be able to understand. But uh, Lionel Dahmer was a really interesting person, and his relationship with his son was very was very touching. And uh, after having met him, I decided to do that book. It is not at all uh, a rendering of of Jeffrey Dahmer's crime. It's it's about a man really attempting to come to terms with with being the father of Jeffrey Dahmer. Actually, Hence it's one title. of my favorite books. But, yeah, really, yeah. really, and on my it, own because you feel like it's. Mm-hmm. That you've you've managed to capture some truth about him as a human being is that I, I yeah, should ask I, you why instead of <laughs> sometimes wondering. sometimes something writ large uh, brings the smaller details of other people's experience into into better focus rather than looking small and when you think of a person trying to go back over his or her parenthood um, yeah and trying to find out where what they did right and what they did wrong. And any of us who are parents uh, trying to help our children move through this wilderness know that it's almost impossible to understand that process. And so, in, in, and I thought Lionel was really making an effort to uh, to do that. Because so often, with not, not having read that book, A Father's Story of yours, um, uh, 
and, and not being familiar with where sort of the, the blame sort of landed, mm-hmm. you often hear like, well, something that, that they were unloved as children or oh, something, sure. you know, of course. So but this, if everyone who was unloved with children, uh, unloved <laughs> as children, you know, ended up was a, sociopath. was a sociopath and we would be in big, big trouble. Well, I mean, there have been great changes in American well, culture. And by great, I mean on scale. rather than <laughs> oh, that, that, That's true, too. But I think one of the horrible mysteries of parenthood, and I am a parent, is to is to see children that seem to be even within the same family raised in exactly the same way by exactly the same rules and react to those those rules and that parenthood differently simply because the influences outside of parenthood are also very great hmm. and and what they what they have as their uh, I don't know their chemical their interior yes. being what they are bringing to it with the well I remember a moment when I wondered if I had done the right thing um, my wife and I had done the right thing by bringing our daughter to live in Tom, on Times Square and we had moved from a fairly idyllic uh, sort of world into Times Square. And Times Square at that time was Times Square. Times Square looked like it did in Taxi Driver. It was uh, nothing but porno stores and hookers and, and everything like that. And I remember I was walking my daughter, and she was just learning to read. And the way uh, children learn to read is by reading everything. And I remember going down 42nd Street, and my daughter says, Soda? Sandwich? Hot adult action. (laughs) And at that point, it gave me pause to think if perhaps maybe this had not been a good idea. And yet with her, it it turned out to be an excellent idea. Well, I'm glad. Me too. (laughs) Otherwise, yeah, there might be another book that she's writing on my father's story. Okay, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. And today in the studio, Thomas H. Cook, Master of the Delta. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, it's Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today, Tom Cook in the studio, master of the Delta. Um, so what was winning the Edgar Award? Did that change everything for you? 
or I wouldn't say that it changed everything. I think it um, it certainly uh, lifts your profile quite a bit within the mystery community. It's by no means uh, going to guarantee uh, success, financial success in the genre, or even sustaining a career for for a long period of time. Edgar Winters, uh, Edgar Winters come and go like National Book Award winners. So it's it's not really a guarantee of anything of immortality. No, no, not at all. Were you influenced by Edgar Allan Poe, the namesake of the award? I I don't I don't think I was influenced by him i mean i certainly read read poe and i was asked not long ago to to write a little thought on on poe and i remember thinking that the odd thing about poe is that everything you read was so so memorable you read so many books uh, by many many authors and you don't necessarily remember anything, and yet if if you ever read a, a Poe short story, you have a tendency to remember it, and I I do find that I do find that remarkable. Did but, you did you come up with any like like reasons why you think that is the case? No, no, other than other than. I mean, in the poems, for example, I, I remember thinking of just that, the repetition of the bells, of the bells, 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 that how courageous it was to do that and how that seemed authentic in some way. It maddening. That's right. And he would often describe himself as inauthentic. I mean, as a, as a writer who wrote just for the magazines and everything like that. And yet, despite that kind of denial, it's, it's rather when Faulkner said, nobody but a blockhead writes for anything but money. And you know that isn't true and that he didn't think that. And and yet, and, and every word he writes, you know that isn't true. And it, with Poe, those kinds of things of just being a journalist and everything. And you, you see that it seemed, almost seems like every time he sat down to write, something authentic really happened. So so it sounds like Tom you're also like a, a voracious reader. You're someone who's always always reading from from when you were a youth <laughs> until and and is that one of the reasons uh was that one of your uh, what drove you to pick the narrators that you did like the the Jack Branch is a teacher at a high school and his father um uh, on this Mississippi Delta in this small town was also a teacher at the same high school although they come from one of the plantation houses oh. and is it was it a way to be able cuz there's lots of references there's Yates there's Willa Cather right. there's you know there's they're just um, was it because you wanted to play with that, or did you, did it add like a, a a layer to something you were trying to get at with the the, the story itself? Well, uh, there, there are several aspects to that question. In, 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 involved in uh, Master of the Delta, in terms of the answer to that, is the character really is wanting to bring to a public school the value, the, not the values, but the advantages that he has gotten from a private education, and so he designs a course on eel, which he hopes to use to treat to teach these kids in the working class all kinds of classical references from Iago, uh, you know, to Tiberius, and and give them in one course... And the get them engaged. Get them engaged. And he thinks, well, evil will really sort of keep them busy, and that'll make them interested, and he's right about that. For me, though... Um, it's a little it's a little more strange in the sense that when I was growing up I did not read um, I was not the high school kid I mean I, I, who read all the time I was interested in girls I was you know it wasn't really interesting for me to read I read what was assigned and I did okay in my English classes and when I wrote I wrote I wrote well I always had a, a native ability to write 
But I, I wasn't a person whose nose was in a book all the time. And um, I ended up an English major simply because I didn't know what else to do. And then I was suddenly assigned Light in August. And your, I rem- was that your first Faulkner? I guess it must have been my first Faulkner. And I remember quite distinctly sitting, reading that, and thinking, this is great. This is great. And I have no idea why or anything like that. I heard a violinist say one time, why does she play the violin? And she said, I play the violin because I believe that when God heard Brahms' violin concerto the first time, he said, that is really good. <laughs> and I, feel, I felt like that about Faulkner, that he had brought something to my life that I couldn't get anywhere else. I couldn't get it in the movies, and I couldn't get it from music, and I couldn't even get it from poetry, but I could get it from this brilliant, beautiful, complicated narrative that he brought of Joe Christmas. And even the sort of ponderousness of the of the imagery, you know, Joe Christmas, Jesus Christ, Christ figure, all of that, none of that bothered me. I thought it was just... It was emblematic of this sort of epic storytelling that he did. Would you think it was you were able to connect to it also because it was Southern? Well, Mississippi is different from Alabama, and also I grew up in the northern uh, foothills of Appalachia in northern Alabama. And so the whole business of the plantation and the heritages of the South with the big houses and the old families, which are very much a part of Master of the Delta, were really not a part of my life. And I'm not so sure that I could identify with Faulkner as a Southerner so much so much that I could just identify him as, a, as an incredibly skilled craftsman. For example, when I think of someone that I liked as much as Faulkner, I think of Melville. Mm-hmm. And then that Melville is in Billy Budd comes and up Billy often Budd. in the, in the yes. in this novel. But do you think that's also, is that why you made the choice not to address race, like in 1954 in this book? Because it's, it's on the second page where you sort of make this, you say, um, well, well, the, the, let's see. Maybe I should the just... Negro Netherworld, and that's yes. that's the, that's the last basic mention of it. There's yes, and one, then there's, there's Morehouse one once Philip, who that's right. grew up in one of that's the right. plantation homes. That's exactly and, right. And but then, the rest. yes, is that why? Because you were uncomfortable with that? Because it's it's poor whites, mm-hmm. and then the the rich whites. Yeah, well, my Those pre- yeah my characters. My my predominant experience of the South, uh, coming from the upper well, not the upper South, the deep South, but still not the plantation regions, not the Delta, and not not even what they used to call the Moonlight and Magnolia crowd in Alabama, which were down in Montgomery, and you know those people ran the state before the Supreme Court outlawed um, this uh, the, the the disproportionality of the legislatures. I mean, that was a huge ruling that the Supreme Court made that really tremendously helped the South in terms of the democratization of it. Not equal to the civil rights movement, but extraordinarily important. And we were never, my part of the South never had a tradition of any of that. We had small-scale agriculture. There was hardly any slaves. My county voted against secession. Um, that, as many of the upper upper mountainous counties voted against it. So that part of the South was never really a function. But I did feel like it would really be good to write a novel about the South that was not just drenched in race, that really sort of started before the civil rights movement began Well, because it was earnest. class. It was class, and it was all about class and it was all and that is really really what master of the delta is about but and, i hope and you, it, you use moments to make your your narrator mm-hmm. very unlikable in moments of yes. class because he he seems to be like someone who he, at, when he's 24 years of age mm-hmm. in 1954 he seems to feel like um 
he's a really a good person and he's kind of doing good and yeah. but he sees it as that but then he's got you you give him these in some of the conversations with his mm-hmm. father or with their, where he just you just see these biases come from him he as, is a, as if he thinks but he thinks he's good <laughs> he is a, he is in many ways a uh unreflective person um, who has become reflective and so the narrative voice is I think good uh, I've tried to make it at least d- deeply reflective in its description of an unreflective man and when he is when he is young he believes that he's doing all these good things and there's one kind of pu- of, of good you know good things that good intentions lead to you know the bad consequences we all know that very well but in his cases he he doesn't even he's not even aware enough to know what his his good impulses are and when they are challenged because his good impulses yes. are so stereotypical yes yeah, and they're but, not authentic and genuine and and when when he's challenged you know they they basically vanish yeah see he, he seems to say there's like the evil vines start to grow yeah. within you, you you attribute that that to him the so, most yeah. important thing in his life is to maintain the the advantages that he thinks intellectually are bad but once he once once they become challenged inwardly, not just outwardly, then then he begins to react uh, according to his class. Yes, so very so interesting. Yes, so we 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 don't have race, but we have class. We have that, which is is something that is somehow often less addressed in in in, in novels here so that yes yeah, so yeah. but i wanted to go back to voice for a moment tom so um so you've got the main narrator jack branch um and then throughout the novel you have other voices that you allow to come in so his is not the only voice we get and you do that by using um let's see eddie miller he's um he's He's the one that Jack Branch, his his vessel for good, right. uh, who he thinks he'll a wayward boy that he thinks he'll help turn, and he's the son of a of the town's a town murderer, mm-hmm. um, and so you give and and he begins to write an essay, and so pieces of this essay make make themselves uh, have a voice in the novel, and then you also use court transcripts. Court so um, so what was what were your decisions? Were were those voices just as you were writing the novel? They were coming in, and so you f- found uh, like vehicles for them. Like Eddie's voice was coming in, so you gave it the vehicle using this, this paper to speak for him. Or did you feel like it was broke up so it helped with momentum to have these different? I never actually consciously plan anything, and um, uh, and yet when I when I re- when I read the book, I realize why those things are there, but they're not there because I plan to put them there for example when the the very first thing that happens in this book that you that uh that is different from the voice is that you realize that a police report has been taken at some point that someone has described uh, jack branch on a particular day while he taught and that he has given and that this description of him has been given to the police so obviously something has has happened to make that day important and to make um, make someone make a police report about it. Uh, court testimony then increases the sense, not so much, I think, of the suspense as, as the knowledge, uh, the foreboding or the foreshadowing, where you know something has happened that has ended up in uh, that has ended up in court. In terms of Eddie's journal, I wanted uh, that was actually the most difficult thing to pull off because. 
it has to be naive to some degree, and it has to be untutored in some degree. And you're always, when you write a mystery, you're always, you're always fighting what the reader expects. And so in this case, when I, uh, when I have Eddie begin to inquire into his own father, what I always ask myself is, what is the reader going to expect to happen here? And then I don't do that if I, possi- if I possibly can not do it. Now, if, at, that, at that point, though, you're still moving organically in the book. Dostoevsky said when he was once asked, Dostoevsky was once asked, um, how did you write the brothers Karamazov? And I thought he gave a true writer's answer. He said, I didn't, the brothers did. And so when you're writing this book, the characters really are very much deciding what will what what is going to happen. And so over planning for me, it just it just never, never it never ever works. That is that is extremely unnerving when you make your living this way because you don't I've been two thirds through novels in the past and not known how they're going to end. And but eventually somehow the characters find their find their ending. Well, let's take a break, Tom, and we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Thomas Cook, Master of the Delta. We'll be back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Thomas H. Cook with his novel, Master of the Delta. He, he was in town here in Ann Arbor to read it on Agatha's Mystery Bookstore at 213 South 4th Avenue. Um, Tom, thanks again for being here. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And so I hear that after you wrap up your U.S. tour, which is quite quite extensive, we were talking about the the mystery community here mm-hmm. in the states. You're you're heading over to to Great Britain. Is that true? Too? Yeah, we um, Harrogate has a a big book festival in Yorkshire, and so my British publisher is uh, is bringing me over there. Uh, uh, I'm a, I'm a little like that Tom Waits song. I'm famous in Japan. I really, do, I, I really do much better in uh, in uh, England, France, Italy. Actually, particularly Japan. So also Festival America is a French festival. I'm invited to by my French publisher. Though that starts in October. So there's a lot of travel 
in the next few next few weeks. That sounds exciting, though. It's oh, I love travel. And so, how is so is the is the mystery community? Is it, it's fair to say there's a mystery community then? For example, in England. Oh, sure. Or in 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 New York. Or oh, New yes, York. they have publishers who are who. Um, I mean, Gallimard, for example, in France has a Stéphane Noir that that just publishes. How is it different from the American? Because I, I feel like the it almost feels like the mystery community in England has been very, like it's 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 been a long, around much longer than ours, et cetera, you know, yeah. <laughs> like the buildings. But um, what, what can, do you, what I, do can you o- I can only speak, I mean, because I live in the United States, but um, I can only speak from, from the way I'm reviewed there and the way I think other Americans are often reviewed there. And they're reviewed very, very well in England. And, and again, this is really just what I've gathered from the reviews. The feeling that sometimes British writers are too stuck in the formulaic thing and that American uh, mystery writing is more freewheeling. Uh, more unpredictable encompasses yeah more can go. and 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 somehow broad and somehow yes broader and more nuanced it's, it's, I have no idea if this is true it's just that um the reviews very often mention that and and very often in the Brit- often in the British press but certainly sometimes in the British press they'll review several British uh, novels and an American novel and they sort of use the American novel to sort of knock the the British the British ones I've seen this a the couple of times I happen to think that Ruth Rendell for example is a wonderful mystery writer so they obviously have you know extraordinarily gifted mystery writers in England and this could be national peak I have no idea I, I just don't know I could see American reviewers sort of doing the same thing you know dishing American writers because the British are so much better and everything so I, I really don't know if it's true but I do notice it that it is. It, it seems like it's a difference when yeah. you're over there. Oh well, congratulations. That's nice. It's nice to be nice to have a French publisher, <laughs> yeah. a Japanese publisher. Japanese, yeah. <laughs> That's great. The Japanese have done two of my books as uh, as PBS series. Actually, they they really really very popular over there. I wish they would invite me, but they never have. Ah, oh, well, I'm sure it's on. I'm sure it, like it's in the cards. Mm, it'll so. be it'll be coming up. <laughs> I'm ready for a long flight, so it would be okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stretch the legs. Yeah. Um, so it also, when I was looking at, at all your ex, your extensive publications, Tom, I saw that um, there was in 2002 you um, published you wrote a book with Larry King. Yes. Moon over Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So what was that? Was that a mystery genre? What was what or what or was it a suspense or was it? Did the talk show hosts get the a knife in the back? <laughs> no. What happened was that um, a publisher in California uh, associated with, with Larry, um, I, I think, came up with the idea that, that maybe Larry would write a, mis- a mystery. He, he reads them a great deal and likes them a great deal. And uh, he came to uh, someone in New York City, a friend of mine in New York City, and said, who would you recommend uh, to work with Larry? And he recommended me, and Larry and I met in Washington and New York and met a few times. But the plan at that point was to... uh, Larry was interested in uh, child abductions and cruelty to children and all that sort of thing. So I think we were sort of moving in that direction. And then 9-11 happened. And I remember we were sitting there not long after that, and... um, I don't know who suggested or how it came about, but 
the idea was not to write another dark dark book about New York, a dark book set in New York. And so I think in this case it was my idea to update Damon Runyon and to write those kind of comic, over-the-top New York characters and to really write a comic novel about New York City. And that's what Moon Over Manhattan is. It's a, it's a comic novel. It's, uh, it's nutty. It's, it's madcap. <laughs> Madcap! Oh, that's great. Really <laughs> so you've is. really, I mean, you've tried your hand then really across the board with the, the nonfiction, um, with the true crime. So, so there's, oh, it seems to be like there's a, a frame of reference, but that you pivot from and, and, and you include yeah. something comic, madcap in, in one of the yeah, endeavors. And I wouldn't just sit down and write a, a comic novel. I mean, but it just, at that particular moment, it seemed almost like your patriotic duty to write something about New York that would live to, to anyone who read it, not just New Yorkers, but anyone who read it would remember that spirit and remember that nuttiness and all of the greatness of New York that had been so um, so undermined by the attacks. Yes, like you said, the Vaina. I mm-hmm. want the Vaina sausages. <laughs> right. or, or so, right? Yes, that was it, Vaina. When you said it, I actually knew what you were talking about. I, got, yeah, I didn't get the ones, second yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, I was like, what? They're ah. good, actually. So, 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 um, so going back to, so, so your, your stories, they're, they're very character driven then. Mm-hmm. Like that's what, um, and, but I noticed when you get to the end of the chapters, you definitely do something like that gives like a slight, like a, a hook, like a, like to kind of give that the reader that propelled into the next chapter. Is that, is that sort of a, a crafts that a conscious craft decision, Tom? It probably is. And I think, uh, I think in the next book I'm going to curb that a little bit. Yeah, do because I was going to say, do you find yourself writing in those rhythms? Because it's like something that you feel like, oh, the chapter's winding down. Yeah. This is this feels right. Well, I got awfully tired of novels that ended with he left the room. You know, where there was all, almost a conscious effort to put not a bit of suspense in or not a bit of foreshadowing. And it was almost like, oh, that's too, that's too genre to, to ever, like, make the person go to the next, the next page. And I remember that Norman Mailer said that the purpose of a novelist is to have the reader say, what then? What then? And that really is what suspense is. And if you, comp- oh, and if you completely neglect that, then you're just you're not going to have your reader moving on, but I also think it can become too naked, and just the fact that you notice so, it at or, obvi- chapter, or obvious is that what you yeah, mean by that? Okay. Yeah, and just the fact that you notice it at the end of chapters and that sort of thing is maybe a reason to to tone it down uh, in the future. But I'm rather I'm rather a natural uh, foreshadower. I mean, uh, there's a sort of of um, oral tradition quality to my writing. I mean, it can be read because I think it can be read aloud, and there there is that sort of that. There's a sort of thing that I sort of have to remember from time to time that it that it really really is a book. It's, it's sto- a storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's storytelling. So so what's what's your um so what's your current project, Tom? What's... Well, I have a new novel that'll be out next year called the uh, the fate of Catherine Carr, and I think it's uh, it's certainly different from Master of the Delta and different from Red Leaves. Um, How so? Well, it's said it's it's said in uh, the modern times, but so is Red Leaves. But it also is a bit of a different story in the sense that what happens in this case is there's a a man whose uh, son was killed years ago, and um, an eight year old boy was kidnapped, and that that went that happened seven years ago, and 
he meets an old detective who's retired, and um, they just began to chat. And he's really interested in the main the main chance of doing profiles, and that's how he puts his living together in this little newspaper where he works. And he thought, well, I'll do a profile of this old detective, and, and the old detective is interested in a case. And it's a very typical, familiar case of a woman who vanished 20 years before. But at the same time, he's doing a profile of a child who's dying of progeria, which is the uh, aging disease, the premature aging disease. And she needs, and this woman who vanished left a story behind. It was all that she left was a, was a story and one poem. And so during the course of doing the profile on this little girl, um, he, it becomes clear to him that she would really like to hear a good story. And so he begins to read her uh, the story that Catherine Carr left behind, and that's how the the uh, story moves. Oh, I see. Okay, so so is is that? Do you find it's good to have these? So it breaks forward and back. It goes to the past and and then jumps to the present, and then is that how you're saying it's working? Or, or are you working within the framework of a story within a story, and then the pieces? If you're going to write a book about moral reflection, then then the, the, the narrator needs to have time to reflect. I really learned that from Conrad. So this is also about moral reflection then? No, Catherine this one Carr. isn't because this oh, okay. one, Catherine Carr is really moving in the present and this is about, this is two people confronting uh, various tragedies in their lives and how those intertwine with a past tragedy. That's really with what the, the master, story is about. And you're talking about Master yeah, of the Delta. The master of the Delta yes. is very Conradian in that sense of like Matthew's always telling the story very often in Conrad and because he's telling it, He's not living it, and therefore he can reflect upon it at the same time, and that's the, so it's the case with uh, Master of the Delta. It, 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 it's a completely different tone when you, when you do those two different kinds of books. So, so it seems like you're, you're, what's your writing schedule like? It seems like you're, you're writing all the time because you've got this other one that's it's finished by the sounds yes, of it because that yes. was a very yes, it's finished. Yeah. It'll be out next year. Yeah. So just, just today I, I was, was thinking about what the, what the next what the next book would be and so uh, I haven't got a title for it and I really like to have a title I, when I when I told people this title one of the persons says well I hope you have Fabio on the cover because it sounded like too much of a romance novel you know but I liked it and uh, and the publisher liked it and, and so we kept it but interestingly enough Red Leaves no not Red Leaves but The Cloud of Unknowing has a completely different title in Britain it's called Murmur of Stones Oh, also nice. Yeah. Also nice. Yeah. So so how do you come up with your ideas? Is it something where you're just, you know, you're finding, is it ever like inspired by something like a news thing? Or, I mean, not, of course you're nonfiction, but. Yeah. Um, I think so sometimes. I mean. Um, or is it just you're writing it out? You're no, sketching it? No, it really, it really, it really depends. I remember what we were coming, my wife and I were coming back, my daughter were coming back from um, from uh, Cape Cod down to New York and we pulled into these McDonald's or wherever, you know, off the side of the road and then we left and my wife looked over at a road sign and she said, oh, that would interest you and I looked over at the road sign and it said Breakheart Hill and by the time I got to New York City I had a lot of that book. I hadn't written it, obviously, word for word, but I knew what it was about. I knew where it was going to be. In the case of Red Leaves, I think... The genesis of that might have been, might have been, I don't know, I really don't know, the Scott Peterson case in this sense. It's not even remotely about the Scott Peterson case. But I remember how um, Mrs. Peterson would come out every day and, and, and declare how innocent Scott was. And it, may, it put me in mind of how deep, a, how deep a burden that is for a parent to have a child accused of crime. 
And that that may well have sort of got me thinking about what became the theme of Red Leaves. And that links back to Dahmer as well, too, yeah. doesn't it? Well, yeah. look, Tom, it's been wonderful. I've Thank enjoyed you. our conversation today on Living Writers. Thanks for being the guest. Thank you so and much. I've enjoyed it very much. Oh, well, wonderful. Thank you. And and uh, thanks for thanks for listening to Ann Arbor. Thanks, thanks to Alex Sergey for engineering. Um, thanks for streaming, whether you're uh, in Florida, Seattle, Germany. Uh, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Thomas Cook's Master of the Delta. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Monday, the 30th of July, 2008. From Pacifica Station, KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. Carl Rove moves closer to being held in contempt of Congress after ignoring a subpoena and refusing to testify. We'll hear from the street reaction to the House's decision to apologize for slavery and Jim Crow laws. Plus, we'll hear why disabilities rights activists are calling for a boycott of McDonald's. All that and more after this news. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines. Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert announced his resignation today, saying he will step down in mid-September after his party elects a new leader. Olmert says that his resignation will allow the new chair of the Kadima party to form a new coalition government to replace him and his cabinet. Failure to form a new coalition government could trigger early elections. Olmert has survived a number of scandals during his tenure and is currently under investigation for exaggerating his travel expenses and allegedly taking bribes from an American businessman. Accused Serbian war criminal Radovan Karadzic has arrived in the Netherlands to face trial before a U.N. tribunal in The Hague. Israel Rafalovic has more. Karadzic arrived in the early morning hours in a special flight from Belgrade to Rotterdam and was immediately taken to a special detention unit in the Schreveningen Maximum Security Prison near The Hague. Karadzic will appear before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia Thursday afternoon to hear the charges against him. The charges include 11 counts of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Chief Prosecutor Serge Bramert says the prosecution and the defense will need months to prepare for what could be a complex trial. Karadzic, who is facing a possible life sentence if convicted, says that he intends to run his own defense. Israel Rafalovich, FSRN, The Hague. President George Bush has signed a new law that bars imports of rubies and jade from Burma, or Myanmar. Bill Bowie has the story. The Tom Lantos Block Burmese Jade Act, named after the late Democratic representative who introduced the measure, tightens an existing